If you want a great conversation with a Philadelphia sports figure you should know more about, listen to One on One with Matt Leon on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. All right, Brian, Sabrina, simple question. Will either of you be watching the Academy Awards this weekend? Nope. <laughs> That's okay. why you don't ask yes or no questions in this industry. I like to be aware of these sort of like cultural things. If I'm not doing anything else, because those award shows can be kind of a drag sometimes. But, you know, I have been trying to watch as many of the best picture nominees as possible because I just like movies. Haven't gotten through all of them. I will say Coda is my favorite, but I'm not expecting it to win. You know, I'm being a little bit facetious. I will catch all the clips on social or in some aggregate article out there on Monday. But I just never get around to seeing the films. I just, I've been so lackluster in watching movies over the last couple of years. Fun story about me is that generally speaking, I tend to despise award shows. I just have never been a fan of them. The one exception is the Academy Awards because I'm I'm a movie geek and I actually do love watching that whole the, the, the pageantry of it. It's just something that's really super cool to me about the Oscars, even if I don't see all the movies, even if I am mad that Spider-Man did not get nominated for Best Picture, <laughs> even though that was the best Marvel movie of all time that's not named Black Panther. But it's just like that is the... I would have loved to have seen that glass ceiling get broken on on superhero flicks. But I know for me, I'll watch the Oscars just because at least, if nothing else, kind of like sports, it gives people just another reason to argue about something. I'm Jay Scott Smith. I'm Brian Seltzer. I'm Sabrina Boyd-Circa. And today we're bringing back a friend of the podcast, Temple Professor Mark Lucher. Now, he's best known for his viral tweet about an essay writing seminar that involved free pizza that nobody came to. Shame on you, University of Michigan. But this time we're talking to him about a fundraiser that he's got going for Ukraine selling guitar pedals. I love this guy. I mean, he's a professor of religion and then he also plays guitar and makes guitar pedals. How many different things does he do? The other part of the conversation, though, I would advise people to stay tuned for because it really gets into a lot of the serious issues at play and some of the subtle yet significant things that Vladimir Putin has been working on over the years leading up to the moment that we now see happening over in Ukraine. It's one of those conversations where you're going to learn a whole lot real fast. And we are grateful to have him come back on with us here on the podcast today. Can we kick this day off with some theater, though? It is Friday after all. It is Friday indeed. You know what that means, Sabrina. Let's <laughs> talk to us about what's happening in theater. So I've got a new show for you that you should check out. Backing Track opened a couple weeks ago at the Arden Theater. It is a karaoke play written by local playwright R. Eric Thomas. Now, if you're wondering what on earth is a karaoke play, I was too. And I had a chat with Eric. That is the first thing that I asked him about. This show, Backing Track, is being described as a karaoke play and live mixtape rolled into one. What yeah. exactly does that mean? <laughs> I know it is. Um, it's a it's a very roundabout way of saying it is a it's a play. It's a comedy uh, that has music interspersed throughout it. You know, the family at the center of this play is really in the karaoke. One of the characters uh, who's played by Brenson Thomas uh, is uh, has gone so far as to become a karaoke host. And so we see him performing different karaoke songs um, as a way of sort of understanding where he is in his journey. Um, the the play really wants to um, 
uh, dive into some of those songs that have really permeated our culture um, in the last like 20, 30 years. Um, and when you when they come on the radio, you're transported right back to where you were when you first heard them, whether you were like a teenager or, uh, you know, sitting in an office somewhere hearing My Heart Will Go On or um, It's All Coming Back to Me Now or Stevie Wonder's If It's Magic. Uh, like just these songs that speak to love and to uh, life in a really big way. Give us a quick, uh, you know, step back, not full plot summary, but, you know, the blurb that you would put out to describe what the show's about. Yeah. So uh, Backing Track is uh, about a family at a crossroads um, and it centers on a young man who is in his, as he describes, his late to mid early 30s. Um, and um, he is uh, sort of given up on love and um, he's also um, processing the death of one of his mothers um, a couple years prior. And so it's a it's a show about the complicated feeling of putting together a community, putting together a new life when you're missing one part of that community, as well as falling in love while still uh, holding on to pieces of grief. And the show has an all POC cast, all people of color. Yeah. Is that something that was intentional when you wrote the show and when you when you were casting it? Yeah, absolutely. All the characters are intentionally uh, people of color. Um, and we wanted to also work with performers of color as well. And the reason for that is that the play is also about how to build a neighborhood um, and how to build a community, um, particularly as neighborhoods and what, what the value of community changes. And I wanted to create a space where you could see the tropes that we so often see in romantic comedies, often with, with white characters and with straight characters, and um, and see those tropes play out with people of color and see how they're different and see how they're the same. Um, I also just know so many really talented actors of color in Philadelphia. Um, Bijan No is in the play, and I've been a huge fan of hers for years. Brenton Thomas, Melanie Finster, um, and Danielle Linnae. Um, Yeah, I just really wanted to create a tableau of people of color um, experiencing life in um, where the problems that they were facing weren't rooted in their their race or their sexual orientation, um, but also that wasn't erased for them because that's the experience that I want for myself. These people are just so mind-blowingly creative. I'm jealous <laughs> of all this. You turn a karaoke play. What are we doing, bro? How, how do you get to be that creative to come up with an idea like that? It's a really good question. Uh, Eric's talent is clear in just a conversation with him. And also from the fact that uh, he is friends with Lin-Manuel Miranda, who gave him some high praise on a book that he wrote and said he's one of the funniest writers. So I feel like if you get that, like, I don't know, that is another level of talent, right? If you're getting compliments from Lin-Manuel Miranda. You get the blessing of Lin-Manuel Miranda. You're basically, it's kind of like you're pretty close to being a made man in these <laughs> theater theaters, royalty. In these theater streets. <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> but everyone check out Backing Track. It's, uh, you know, Eric says it's two hours and 10 minutes of visiting with a family that you'll want to hang around with for a lot longer. So I think that is a pretty good summary. The full cast is people of color, which I think is amazing. It's got a lot of topics that you will probably be familiar with from living in Philly. The show runs through April 12th, and your tickets are at ardentheater.org. We'll also put that link in the show notes and on Twitter, of course. And another thing we've been doing lately that I've personally taken a great shine to is that we've got the Philadelphia Sports Fan of the Week, another Friday staple, as Dave Uram, our ace sports reporter here at KWW News Radio. He started this great look at Philly sports fans of all different 
types of backgrounds and people who have all different kinds of stories. And this week, with the NCAA tournament pretty much being in full view. By the way, shout out to Villanova. Nice job last night getting that team out of there. We got to get into some college hoops. And we brought Dave in. Dave, what do you have for us this week on the Sports Fan of the Week? Jay, this week's Sports Fan is in the spirit of March Madness. It is all knee fans, uh, the goal is standard. They are super fans of LaSalle men's basketball. Here is Dennis Grove, one of the co-founders, talking about what all knee fans basically is. We were in the front of the student section all four years. So LaSalle was always in our minds. And there is something to be said about being like a niche Twitter account, right? Like for a team that maybe doesn't have much notoriety, I think that it kind of plays well on Twitter that we're like the only two people that talk about the school and we can, we kind of have leverage there. Like nobody else is talking about them so we can control our messaging and we can control the jokes that we make. And, and, and I think people love that stuff. So Jay, the reason this is topical is because uh, as I mentioned, one, it's March madness and two, the big five is not what it used to be. And I think Part of, from what I gathered, the sense that I got is part of the reason that Dennis and Rich want to do this is to not only bring attention to LaSalle, but also hopefully bring attention back to Big Five basketball because they agreed with me that it's just not what it was. It's definitely not in a great place right now. And it doesn't seem like there's a blanket concern for the Big Five. It feels like some schools care about the Big Five more than others. I won't name names, but I think that that is a huge factor because if they all cared about it as much as they should collectively, we'd be seeing more games at the Palestra. We'd be seeing more Big Five games at the Palestra. I think that's a huge piece that has since gone away due to you know certain schools' agendas. Dave, we might be burying the lead here. Is this Dennis the same raise the cat Dennis Grove? Dennis Grove is the raise the cat Sixers fan. <laughs> That's our sports fan of the week. The Olney fans attached to LaSalle University, the explorers of LaSalle University. Dave, thank you so much for joining us. You can go to the link in our show notes or check out Dave's Twitter at Mr. Uram to read all about the Philadelphia sports fan of the week and also nominate yourself or someone you know. Dave, thanks so much for joining us. Always appreciate being on the Johncast, Jay. Yes, for people who know those glory days of the Big Five, and not even talking about the 60s or 70s or 80s, but even more recently in like the late 90s, they really were awesome, and hopefully we can get a revival of that in the Philly college hoop scene, and include Drexel somehow, some way as well. Got to get all those Big Five schools involved because that's such a big part of Philadelphia culture coming up. However, it's time to touch base with our favorite free pizza offering, expert essay writing, passionate religious studies teaching temple professor, and just a great human being overall, Mark Lucher, my favorite Canadian. No, he's not giving out free pizza again, <laughs> but he has something else really cool going on that we'd love to talk to him about when it comes to supporting the people of Ukraine. We'll have that conversation coming up next. I'm Jay. I'm Brian. I'm Sabrina. Let's do a little bit of a reset here. So back last fall, we reached out to a gentleman named Mark Lucher. Now, he's a professor of religion at Temple University, but he was on sabbatical at the University of Michigan for part of the fall semester. And he went viral on Twitter for posting what was just honestly just a very sad photo. 
It was. It was epically sad. It was virally sad. What really got me was the caption, not even the four untouched boxes of pizza that he (laughs) posted a photo of. He wrote in his caption, I organized a free how to write an essay session for the building where I'm staying in, which is full of undergrads, was advertised in the building newsletter, bought a bunch of pizza. Nobody showed up. I'm actually so sad. So we had a great chat with Mark back in October. Go back to the episode from October 22nd if you want to hear that. And we've stayed in touch with him, you know, largely over Twitter. He recently told us about something that he's been doing to raise funds for Ukraine. So we brought him back in. Hey, Mark. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us again. What have you been up to lately? Well, you know, since the war started and we've all been on edge wondering what we can do to help out. I know a lot of people have been digging in to their own resources to try to send money and make donations. and. I I think that's wonderful. And I realized that I had some resources where I might be able to do a little bit of fundraising so I could actually present money to a charitable organization working for humanitarian aid in Ukraine that would be a little more than what I could dig out of my own pocket. So when I'm not, you know, professing stuff at Temple University in my own other life, I make fuzz pedals for guitar players. And um, I came up with uh, this little delightful box right here called the Dirty Hippie. Which is a real <laughs> it's it's um it's modeled off of um a fuzz that just has this amazing, amazing sound. Uh, Mick Ronson from uh, David Bowie's band used it on the Ziggy Stardust album. So, I mean, you've all heard the tone before. It just sounds great. So I'm doing a limited run of these or I've done a limited run of these. I think I'm on number nine right now out of 10. A hundred percent of the profits are going towards humanitarian relief for the citizens of Ukraine. I'm going to be giving the money to Doctors Without Borders who are doing really, really amazing work, both for refugees who are on the other side of the border and for people who need medical aid within the borders of the country. So we've raised a decent, modest, but decent amount of money for that. And hopefully we can continue to do so. I love it. I love it. It was such a multifaceted human you are, Mark. Um, As you said, it's been a month now since the war in Ukraine started. And it's just, I think for so many people out there, been so difficult to reconcile and wrap your mind around. For you, what's been the hardest part to digesting and processing all this? Initially, I wondered whether or not people in the United States were really going to care. And to my delight, it really seems like most people do. I, almost everybody I, I've met or almost everybody I know that I'm in contact with is invested in what happens there. But what's bothered me the most really is in sort of deconstructing the events that led up to it, the degree to which Vladimir Putin has engineered this as a long game. And it goes back so many years. I mean, even within the history of recent American politics, so much has been a matter of strategizing on his part to put the right people in the right places and foster the right kind of social unrest through social media. So, you know, this goes back really far. And I think one of the things that's been really, really painful for me is to, as I'm sifting through this as part of my research, is really just to see how how deliberate and how strategic Putin has been and, and how ill-prepared our leadership was in accounting for that and anticipating it. Now, your day job at Temple is you're a professor of religion at the College of Liberal Arts. This war started, this invasion started, and Vladimir Putin went the length of calling for the denazification to justify this invasion of Ukraine. When you hear this, what do you make of that? It's very clever. It's also quite sickening. It's sickening, obviously, because there, there are, that doesn't describe the mainstream government and society of Ukraine. So I, it's obviously a very duplicitous way to justify an invasion of a sovereign nation. But it's especially disgusting because what it's doing is it's sort of engaging in what we call Holocaust inversion. 
Holocaust inversion is where you basically say the Nazis and their goal, as we understand it in common discourse, we have to rethink it to mean something that it really wasn't. So to say that I'm going to denazify the Ukraine and to say that the person who I'm wanting to depose from the Ukraine is, is a Jew, Zelensky's Jewish, that's Holocaust inversion. It's saying Zelensky is the real Nazi. It's really a way of denying, I guess, Jewish trauma and Jewish suffering because although the Nazis killed many, many, many people, Jews were always at the top of the hit list. And to deny that and to then abstract the word Nazi, which has a universal sense of revulsion to it, it really plays with history and fact in a very, very dangerous way. You mentioned, Mark, the responsibility and role that American leadership played in precipitating events that have led to this. Can you unpack that a little bit? I mean, this isn't just a last four or five years thing. No, it, it really isn't. Uh, I wrote an op-ed a couple of weeks ago about the religious dimensions of Putin's campaign in the Ukraine and the way that he's manipulated religious anxieties in the United States. One of the things that led to this happening, I think, or one of the things that opened the door to it is what happened before Trump came to power, uh, in particular during uh, Obama's administration. One of the things that I've been researching is the way that language affects people's sense of religious identity, the myths that they accept as their communal or individual myths of identity um, and value systems and things like that. And when we take a look at Obama's administration, he really tried to write away and write out anything religious about terrorism or violence. When he would talk about terrorism from people who were either Christian nationalist terrorists or Islamist terrorists or whatever the case may be, he would just call them violent extremists. It, he would pretend that religion didn't factor into it at all. And he would make statements periodically that as a religion scholar, I, I, I find deeply problematic. I remember in 2014, he said something to the extent of that no religion tolerates or advances the idea of the slaughter of innocents. And that's absolutely not true. All religions do this. All you have to do to justify the slaughter of innocents is to point at an innocent person and say they're demonic or they're the other or they're the enemy, whether they are or not. And, you know, kaboom, then you can make a target out of them. So I think that some of the problems with the Obama administration in terms of messaging and language left open this sort of gaping hole that people who were at the other end of religious violence started to feel traumatized by. I mean, to a certain degree, I did, too. I remember when there was the Charlie Hebdo massacres and uh, the gunmen or one of the gunmen went into a Jewish supermarket. When Obama spoke about it, he didn't talk about the fact that this Islamist is terrorism and Islamist is not the same as Islam. Islamist ideology is a political ideology that uses Islam for justification. So this person was an Islamist terrorist, but he was also an anti-Semite. He targeted the Jewish kosher supermarket and targeted Jews in that supermarket. And when Obama addressed it, he said that they were just people in the deli. And, you know, that's that's just writing out in a very important component of the religious experience there. And I think that that moved people to feel deeply insecure and anxious. And so when Trump rolled in a couple of years later and started using language in a, in a really irresponsible way with respect to religious bias and, and uh, religious prejudice and religious anxiety, I think a lot of people were just like, oh, at least this guy gets that there are religious components to the suffering that we've been seeing over here. And a lot of people who might not have otherwise voted for him probably did. So, you know, it's been many years in the making to get us to where we are right now, where people can't separate fact from fiction. And it becomes much more tribal in terms of the way people organize their thoughts as opposed to logically reasonable. This is always yes. a fascinating conversation to have because language means so much. And it also feels like at times we're kind of repeating history when it comes to this. Even what we're looking at right now with Russia and Ukraine, 
Do you see kind of a similar thing there? And what are ways to avoid what happened 70 and 80 years ago out in Europe? I do see a lot of similarities. I've been seeing them for a long time. I see a repetition of patterns that we saw in the early 1930s in particular. And the thing that as a religion scholar that really upsets me and and that I, I tend to focus on most when I discuss this with my students is the intertwining of religion with nationalism. When Hitler came to power, he and his high command made a real effort to intertwine the church in Germany with the Nazi party. Whether it was German Catholics or German Protestants, leaders in the churches were very strongly aligned with the Nazi program. And of course, we see that now here too. How many times have you seen pictures of things that say, my God is Jesus and and my president is Trump or something like that? So the intertwining of religion and religious identity with political despotism and um, a really fascist ideology is on the rise. And it's something that we cannot just sort of look the other way at because we know what happens. Hitler was a marginal figure in 1930. And by 1933, he was chancellor of Germany. So it doesn't take long. And they didn't have the internet back then. So we really have to be careful about these things. Mark, thank you so much for joining us for the first time on the Johncast, but the second time with us here. This is an amazing conversation. You're very welcome. Thank you all so much for having me. I really enjoyed this. And we will link to Mark's Twitter in our show notes so you can check it out there. And also from our Twitter, we'll engage with some of his content about these fantastic buzz pedals. And as it turns out, to kind of piggyback on some of the stuff that we were just talking about, we're going to have our Udo haiku not one, but two this week with the great Justin Udo. He is checking in from his hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Justin, hello. Hey, Brian. Thank you so much for uh, once again having me on the Johncast. I always love to come on here and, and to share an Udo haiku. This is, as a general assignment reporter, you know, weeks are just all over the place. And this week was no different. And this week, one of the really kind of cool stories that I got to cover was to talk about a way that Holocaust survivors' stories are being told. For years, they were the survivors went into schools, but as we know with the pandemic, that's a risk they can't take, and the survivors are a little older, but their stories are now going to be told through plays, and I think it's really cool that we had a playwright I talked to who she talked to dozens of, of survivors or listened to their stories and put a play together, and those plays will now go into schools to enlighten younger generations about these just stories, these incredible stories that people went through during the Holocaust in World War II. So I actually have two Udo haiku for you today, and I'll read those momentarily. The first one is, these harrowing tales, survivors who beat the odds will live forever. These harrowing tales, survivors who beat the odds will live forever. Okay, great stuff. And what do you got for number two? Sharing memories for generations to come long after they're gone. Sharing memories for generations to come long after they're gone. An Udo haiku. So that's what I have for you guys this week. Always giving us some good art and things to think about. Justin, appreciate it. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Thank you all for having me. That's one way to go into a weekend is kind of just think about where we are, man. It's like those who, who don't follow history are doomed to repeat it, basically. Parts of the road don't look great right now, but it's not too late. That's what I'll say. It is not too late to change course. We're aware of things that are happening. So some things to think about going into the weekend. 
And that wraps it up for this week here. I'm Jay Scott Smith. I'm Brian Seltzer. I'm Sabrina Boyd-Circa. Be safe out there, take it easy, and we'll be back at you again on Monday. Monday.